Okay, so I'm here with England captain John Bowden. How are you doing today, mate? I'm good, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. It's great. I've, I've been really looking forward to it. And I, I mentioned quite some time ago that I was going to be having you on. And I keep having messages from the Premiership Football community being like, when's John Bowden coming on? <laughs> so, so it's, yeah, I, I've seen you've been a busy lad. So, uh, you know, I've had to work my time. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, when I first approached you to come on the podcast, something that really kind of struck me from what you said was that you had a lot of goals kind of as when you were younger about having your own house and being a dad and doing all these kind of independent things mm. and mentioned how Publisher Football kind of helped you set more goals and have the confidence to go and achieve those things. Yeah. And what, what, did you, what do you feel that Publisher Football did to offer you that kind of thing? Well, like I say, when I, when I grew up, I always like drive and strive for something. And so I always like, like you said, I set myself goals that I wanted to achieve in life. And that was obviously have a house, have a full-time job, um, get married and have a child basically. And, and when I was obviously growing up, power football wasn't really there. And it wasn't until I was around 15 that power football came into my life. And so obviously I still hadn't achieved all of what I wanted to in my personal life. But then when power football came along, it gave me them extra um, goals that I set myself, as in, want to represent my country, want to win titles, want to win um, European Championship, World Cups, etc. And so they just added to the list. And I feel in life you need to set yourself goals because otherwise you could just live life like you know, not pushing to be the best that you can be, you know. And um, yeah, that that's what it done. And um, yeah, what Power Chef Football has given me since it came into my life, it's been incredible. Like. I wouldn't have met half the people I've met in my life that have made a massive influence on it. Um, and the friends and the places I've been to and the, uh, the emotions that I've been through in my life, uh, majority of them have been down to Badger football. And so I've been certainly grateful for the sport being involved in my life. Yeah, it's, I, I feel very much the same. And I'm sure a lot of professional football players listening to that can relate to that. In, te- in terms of that kind of mindset and how you you talk about setting goals from quite early, quite an early age, mm. and you also spoke about how important your your, your dad is to 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 your football career and how much he's encouraged you. Mm. Was he a big part in helping develop that mindset? And in, in what way did that were you encouraged to to have that kind of mindset? Well, he hasn't. He didn't. Never made it like clear that this is what we have to do, but. Obviously, having a disability, you're always challenged in life anyway. And when I was born, obviously I was diagnosed at two years old, and they said that I'd never be able to walk again. And my parents, like uh, I think majority of disabled parents, uh, majority of parents who've got disabled kids, don't just like to be told that they can't do nothing or it, it, it can't be done. You'll continue to push to try and get that, that prove them wrong, you know? And um, so... That was my, my parents' aim, to try and get me the best help, to get me to walk. And um, obviously, growing up, I then had leg braces and I walked unaided, you know, well, not unaided, but with my leg braces, uh, which is something that the, the doctors never said that I could do. And so it kind of stemmed from then that I'm never going to be told that I can't do something. And if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And so I, I just, like I said before, if I don't set myself targets, I don't feel like, I'm constantly pushing myself to be the best that I can be in my life. And so that, that's personally why I set myself targets because I'm never happy for 
just medium. I want to be the best or the best at what I can do. Yeah, that's a, that's a very strong message. And you can see that in the way that you play the game and the way that you've carried yourself for the, for the third amount mm-hmm. of time. I've, I've often talked about how preparation in terms of like physical fitness and and having, you know, be mentally aware of what's best for me and how I can maximise my own game potential is important for going into a big game, you know, like, for example, like the World Cup final in 2012, things like that. So what what is, what is your kind of pre-game routine look like in terms of how much do you prepare off the pitch in order to perform on it? So we, obviously working from England, we've had the privilege of having the psychologists and the nutritionists and stuff like that. So they kind of came on board in 2013-14. I'd say prior towards before that, I never really focused on the pre-match stuff because... I guess I was kind of young back then and I didn't really think it made a massive difference. And so I'd just rock up and I probably haven't had the best night's sleep. I've probably been playing Xbox or, uh, you know, woke up, didn't have no breakfast, uh, that kind of thing. But once the FA fully came on board and we had, I had access to the people that have a lot of knowledge on the, on the subject, um, it kind of opened up a whole new world and made me focus on stuff like going to bed early, making sure I've got enough sleep, uh, having a pre-match routine, which is obviously having a certain amount of food, knowing how long I need from waking up to actually being at my full potential before I play a match. So it might be like if I've got a 9.15 kickoff, if I need two hours to, to wake up and be ready, I've got to get up at half eight, uh, seven o'clock, quarter by seven, to know that I'm at my full potential when kickoff comes. Um, but yeah, coming with England's made me realise a lot of that. And um, obviously Erin... Erin Pryor, she's our sports psychologist and she's working with us individually and as a team. Um, she's made me focus on things that I, I never did before. And uh, the Euro final last year, she gave me a, te- a talk uh, the day before the final and just things that she says, like sticks in your mind. And I think, I think if you speak to a lot of England guys, that made the difference between us walking away semi-finalists losing and, and winning it. Um, because like being in a position of 2-0 down against France in the final, I don't think any people would have given us a, a chance of coming back, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I was actually about to go into that. Um, the, the fact that previously in the tournament, you'd, you'd lost 2-0 to them in the group stage, I believe. And, and so, and you'd already spoke about how, in previous, previous interviews about the fact that you felt as if you, you kind of had that speech prepared for losing those big games and, 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 and having to say, I'm sorry we didn't do it this time and we'll do it again next time and we'll keep going. So so in terms of beat you know, when you when you've already lost them in the in earlier on in the tournament and you're in the final and it's you're two 0 down with ten minutes to go, how you know, is it was what was the difference? Was the difference really the psychology the psychology side of it? That, that was a major major issue, obviously, no, never to let our heads drop. Um, we know how talented us individual players are, and as a team, we can be. Um, the only difference we made, well, the advantage we had was, because we lost them in the, in the group stage, we could look at the video and make adjustments in the final, um, which obviously prior to, the, uh, prior to the loss in this group stage, we never played them with technology, you know? 
so we couldn't analyze what we could do better and we spent a good hour two hours studying the footage and making tactical changes in the final um obviously to to rectify what we've done wrong in the group stage um obviously the first goal was kind of a it, i don't know maybe a positioning error on my behalf which let in the first and then the second one was just a freak a freak goal kick that went wrong really or a free kick that went wrong with open goal and so we know if we still stuck to what we believed in um that's one thing as a group we we go into the same the tournament with the same mindset of playing a certain way but sometimes when it goes wrong we tend to revert back to old type and coming from the world cup in florida we agreed in Finland, we wouldn't do that. We would stick to what we'd know. And if it doesn't go right, then it doesn't go right. But at least we stuck to our principles. And so that's what we've done, carried on throughout the final. And 2-0 down, we still continued to play, still tried to work the ball as much as we could, passing, moving, and thankfully it paid off. Yeah, and that, that says a lot for, you know, in terms of, you look at a country like France, who people could say, you know, in, in terms of individual talent, that, that, such a strong side. Um, so really finding that philosophy and way of playing is really important to try and get to compete with those guys and never mind actually beat them in a final. That, that's the changes we made, you know. We saw in the in the group stage that they're, they dribble. They dribble, they're very good. Yeah. They're probably the best dribbling team, or Momo especially, is one of the best dribblers in the world. So that's kind of the change we made. We weren't going to contact, go into contact with them during the pitch because we know they'll majority of the time win we get past us and that's us out of the game so what we've done we kind of like soaked up the pressure let them then try and pass the ball around our box and we know we're better passers than they are when it comes to team team things and we'll just pick off when they make a loose ball and then we'll counter attack from there and as you saw our two goals was from one of their corners and one of their set pieces which we then counter attacked and scored up the other end so our tactics kind of came came through, um, but kind of after we went to no doubt. It's it's really interesting to hear that because I feel as though the tactical side of Portugal football is, is kind of underestimated in most countries. Very much so. England are doing really well, but when you look at when you look at the gap between England and France compared to England, France, and maybe America and Australia compared to like every other country, including Scotland kind of thing. Mm. What would you say countries like Scotland and, and Ireland and things, countries like that to try, what is required from us to try and develop to that next level? Obviously the, the coaching helps. Obviously, um, if you think about the countries you've said, they've been playing the sport for a, a long, long time. And um, even before we started playing, France, Japan, um, America have been playing it a long time before us. So we were, trying to catch up, you know, and it is all about developing individual skills. As you individually get better, your whole team are going to get better. And it's the coaching, the coaching skills. It isn't just someone coming in and just like a dad of a player or something and just thinking, oh yeah, you know, just stick in there, 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 and it'll be fine. And we'll score some goals and we'll let in some goals. It's not like, we've got Colin Gordon as our manager and he used to be a professional footballer. He used, he's been involved in the sport throughout his life. And so, the knowledge he brought into our squad just made us look, he's the one that wanted to play the four out. And now we're playing that. Loads of teams are playing it because they've seen how well it works when it works well. But you can't just play four out and not have the players that are capable of doing 
the, the object of the, the tactic and um, have the confidence to do so. And the confidence comes from the coaching side, the philosophy side. And um, yeah, there's a whole combination to get to the level that we're at, but um, not about hard work from every person that involves the coaching staff. They can't just rock up to a session and think, oh, I'll just, I'll just think of something to do when we get there. There's got to be planning prior to the session and they want to get out of the session what, what they want to, obviously, their team to play yeah. to. Well, it's, what I really like about it is it makes the sport better to watch. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's a more fluid way of watching it because ultimately, nobody really, when you watch, if you watch a game and you see Kev dribbling all the time, we understand, you know, like some myself and, and you know, know how difficult it is to drill past somebody. But somebody looking from the outside in just sees, you know, doesn't quite understand the, the skill element there and, no. and what, wants to see the ball moving and wants to see, you know, a, a, a fluent game. So yeah. England are really leading the front in it and making sure that the, the sport has a chance to become more mainstream. Um, like you say, it is it's a sport for the people you know and if someone if we're like enticing people to come and watch it and it's this boring game where it's just two chairs dribbling alongside each other it's not going to get them coming back to watch more is it yeah. and uh that's our job as players and coaches that all right we want to win games but we want to make it entertaining we want to make people come and think oh yeah there's going to be a few goals in this game and not just a nil nil dribbling slog um where you might get a goal here <laughs> and there and um, so that's our job as players and coaches to make it attractive for the people that are viewing it, maybe for the first time or coming back for a second time. Yeah, yeah. When you spoke about like the comeback in the final, one thing that really comes to is your is your competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've you've spoken in the past about how your favourite thing in poetry football is the competitive part of it, which I do believe, as I say, that's lacking in disability sport in terms of how we promote the sport. Um, and it, and when you think of it for that side of things, it got me thinking about the coverage, the coverage of an achievement like beating fans in the final and winning the Nations Cup. Do you do you feel as though what can what can we do as a sport to showcase the the athletic performance side of things and promote the sport in a better way? Um, regarding what you said about disability sport in general. So when people come into my team at Aspire now, I tell them I'm not here to have fun. That's not what I'm about. I'm here to win stuff. And if you don't want to win stuff and be competitive in your place in the team, then you don't belong in Aspire. Because I'm past the fun session stage that we're just turning up and having a kick around. That's not for me anymore. Parachute football's moved on so much that there are teams that are just starting up. So you can have a kick around and have fun there. But when you come to training for me, it's we, we want to win the next game and we want to win the, 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 the Champions League, we want to win the Premier League, we want to win the Cup. And so I'm striving every player in my team to be the best that they can. And I want them to have the same mentality as I have. In regards to promoting the, the sport, um, it's a tough one, you know. Like We can share footage, we can share... Um, streams obviously live streams when they're happening um it's just hitting that one person that's in a certain place uh, like a tv studio or something that can then help us push it to the next level and uh, for me the Paralympics will 
do that, but it's whenever we get that stage to be in the Paralympics. And that moves on to an interesting topic, the Paralympics. It's something I've mm. spoken about quite a bit on this podcast with different guests and previously spoke about how we're not in the Paralympics and why that was. What, why aren't we in the Paralympics and what do we need to do to, to get into it? So, uh, obviously, as you know, well, you probably know, there's, you can't enter a sport unless one drops out. And when one drops out, there's probably about 10 to 15 sports going for that one slot. Every time one drops out, we're always then part of a, a, a group that are then challenging for that one um, slot. So we've gone from my, this is my knowledge, obviously I don't know the full ins and outs. Um, we've tried once and we didn't get successful. We then went again a couple of years later and we got past the first stage to the second stage, which is progression. Um, and then they said no, for some reason, I don't know the full reasons why um one of the problems we have is that the people that are saying no is down to the power chair itself they from what i hear they can't understand that it's the player in the chair that's doing the work rather than the chair itself you know and they think because it's a power chair it it's down to the chair but this is where I need people to get in the chair and show me that you can do what I can do, yeah. you know? And like you said earlier, uh, when people are watching it, they're thinking that, oh, it's easy to dribble past someone. All right, well, come and show me that it's easy to dribble past someone. And we've done something this year when we were raising money for the Champions League. We, we set up a, a kickabout day where able-bodied people pay to come and play in a team in a tournament. So, Every player on my team had the job of get, get setting up a team of their own, of able-bodied people to come and play in a tournament against each other. And the amount of people that come off that pitch saying, well, how do you do that? Like, I can't even drive in a straight line. It's like, yeah, these are the people that now see what we go through to be the best that we can be. And if more people try power football, obviously to see the talent that us guys have, um, I think it will open their eyes a lot more to, to see how hard it is. So you think there's like a, a lack of appreciation for, for how difficult the sport actually is? Yeah, I think exactly that, to be honest. And like I said, I'm, never, I'm not on a panel of people that push it. Like obviously, there's a committee that put the case of Paralympic to the uh, Paralympic Committee. Um, I, I don't know who they are, but we do it. And um, obviously, they know the full details. But my overall view is, is exactly what you just said. Yeah. When I was looking into it, something that came up and kind of occurred to me as I was thinking about it was, you know, we have we have all these different chairs and every country has all these different rules. Mm. And when you look at the majority, if not every Paralympic sport, they're all under the same set of rules and the same umbrella. They all, they're all kind of together in what the sport is and what they're trying to achieve. And... Um, we spoke about how England focused on passing and moving and France are more dribbling orientated. And um, even in, for example, even in the Geneva Cup, Tessie Denos went and played for the first time for a club from Scotland in Europe. And um, they were outraged when they were playing a French team and they dribbled the ball over the line. Because as far as they were aware, that wasn't allowed. But, but, in, but in France, it is allowed. Um, so if you're if you're on the 
Paralympic panel, so to speak, and you're you're trying to get a good idea of what the sport's about, and you, then you, you go and watch a game in England, and you go and watch a game in France, and the rules in the sport is different. Yeah. How how important is that? How do you think we can start to work, get all these associations to kind of put the differences aside and work together for the betterment of professional football? It's getting there. Um, like you say, also in Paralympics, they've got classification. A few years back, we never had classification in our sport. And so we have that now. So we are, again, one stage further along to being what they want us to be, you know. Um, I agree with you about the pushing over the line. Again, at the last Euros um, last year, you, you weren't allowed to do that anymore. So France will take that away and then hopefully adapt their game to not include that. And obviously that comes down to the referees. So there's plenty of French refs and international refs at these tournaments that they can take it back to their club levels and uh, interpret the game like everyone else is. And like, we need to have, have that set of rules at the top that everyone follows down. And um, there are people's interpretations of the rules and, and hopefully that dribbling over the line is, is one that will change for the better now and everyone will play to the same rules. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I think 95% of rules are the same within every, every club and uh, league in the world. Um, there are just them kind of little, little things that need ironing out, like you say, to yeah. make sure that we are all playing the same and uh, we don't have these discrepancies if, if the Paralympics, uh, you know, um, challenge them. Exactly, and, and like you say, we are early on in the in the in the process of, you know, classification and things like that, and it just comes down to you know, on this kind of topic, you've got to be thinking. You've been playing the sport for eighteen years now. Which is quite a long time. Oh boy! Oh, almost as long as I've been born. <laughs> been alive, been alive, which is mental to think in it. Um, but obviously, the sports came a long way um, since then. I, I, I know myself because from when I started in Scotland, I was on one of the four players that were the very first session. Mm. The, the other three are unfortunately no longer with us, so I'm going solo from the first one and. Being able to see the evolution between you know NHS chairs and using swimming logos to having all these amazing chairs and equipment and things like that, we're obviously early in our process compared to England and things. But but does it give you confidence when you see the progress that's made? What do you think the next eighteen years looks like for first football? It, to me, it's incredible to think what it can go to. You know, like you say, I've been playing such a long time, so when I, I I started, we had car tyres, NHS chairs, huge footballs, no video footage, no live stream, nothing like that, you know, and it was all self-funded stuff. And so it's kind of hard for me when people come into the sport over the last like five, five, ten years and say, oh, the sport's not really progressed that much over the last five years. All right, we've got video footage or whatever. But they don't see all of the hard work that went in prior, prior to that to get to where we are today. And so many key figures in it have uh, changed the way that parachute football is. And just like live streaming the, the matches now at our National League has made such a difference on us as coaches, us as players. We can actually look back and focus on our individual performance, our team performance, and maybe the coach's performance, you know. And um, uh, we've got that now. So we see the footage, obviously, when we're playing. Um, the chairs always are going to be 
getting better over the years. So in 18 years' time, it, I don't know what the journey is going to be like then, to be honest. They'll probably drive themselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully hopefully the, the ball will get smaller. That's what I want to happen. Um, we're very talented people now, and I feel that we can play with a smaller ball, as long as, obviously, the bumper hits the ball correct. Um, maybe smaller goals. Um, I just think we can kind of more... Now we're at a stage in our, our sport we can kind of streamline it a little bit more towards the normal sport, like a normal football, with yeah. it like a smaller ball. Maybe also my, I hate the two-on-one ball um, for attacking. Uh, I understand the defensive side of two-on-one. I, I agree that. I just feel like passing the ball in a smaller space is a lot harder than passing it wider, you know? Mm-hmm. And so why punish a team that's trying to pass the ball in within three metres correctly um, when it's it's harder, you know, and so I, I hope some of the rules will change in a few years' time to reflect uh, the progression of the game. Um, but yeah, when it comes to eighteen years, there's a, uh, coverage, big, the big competitions, Champions League, World Cups, Euros, um, and then there's the individual um, countries that uh, promote and support their leagues individually. Yeah, that's a really good point about the two v one going forward, because um, I've always felt that as well. You, you kind of have, you, you do a good pass, and, and but it's the person's like a meter too close to you, and you go, "Well, that that was really hard to do that pass." <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, um, Again, it's it's down to I want the referees to get in the chair mm-hmm. and show me that you can pass within three meters and make sure it's accurate because it's way I hope work is you can be as close as you want passing but as soon as the defender touches the ball if you're then within three meters then it's a foul because then it's kind of when the defender touches the ball the ball's overturned which means then you're in the defensive team and you're then within three meters of the ball you know that's how i want it to work and i'm hoping that someone listening to this will change the rules and it, well perhaps it makes it sport more fluent as well in the sense of like you're always you're always going to be going back and forth like almost like a, almost like the pace of a basketball game, mm. rather than having it stopping every two minutes for a two one here and there. And yeah, especially when you know I found that to be a big issue in Scotland when new players come in. Um, you know it's easy knowing the two one rule when you've been there and you you know it. Uh, it's invading you almost, but you yeah. come in, you 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 are thinking about you know mainstream football. That's your head is already in that. So you don't really understand why you can't go and make yeah. that close pass. And, and, and I think the point you make is really good because it encourages better technical ability mm. as well. You know, so these are things that the sport can look at. For, for example, in Scotland, a lot of the things that we know now that seem obvious, you know, we, we, they weren't so obvious at the time. Um, mm. I look back on the first game we had against where we played Middlesbrough and we got absolutely hammered. But I actually thought our team was pretty, it was relatively strong in terms of individual people. But we yeah. just had, we didn't know how to defend anything. and Middlesbrough just tore us apart because we had one guy chasing around three players. Yeah. You know? And so those are, those are, I feel as though, do you think 
the countries like that information needs to be more out there in terms of you've talked about the quality of coaching and how important coaching has been to the England setup. Yeah. But it's not really something that's, that's sort of sh- that knowledge and sharing that knowledge and encouraging more coaches to take part. Is that something that's kind of lacking in other countries, do you think? Yeah, potentially. Because um, it, it, when it comes to the coaching side, you probably, eight out of 10 teams will play the same formation which is your standard goalkeeper and your free out. And the free out just kind of, they've got their set kind of positions, but they can mosey wherever they want, you know. And it's very rare that you see any other kind of formation on a pitch. Um, and that is down to the, the coaches because they've either just come into the sport and saw other games and that's how they've done it. And they've just kind of adapted that their formation rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to play this certain way because I think, this will revolutionise the sport for my team, which is what Colin done for us as England. And now my my Aspire team, we we try and emulate what England do. Obviously, we've not got the, the players at England level, but we, we've got good enough players to do it. Um, West Brom have obviously done it in the last three years in our in our league, and they've been great at it. And obviously, quite a lot of their team are England players. And so they, they've pulled it off and played some great football throughout the years. And so it is. it does take someone with just a different mindset to bring a different set of tactics and different instructions to to the team that they're coaching, you know? And um, yeah, potentially it's because we haven't got workshops for coaches that could look at a bigger picture and try and make different tactics work for the sport. Um, or it's just, just not having, I don't know. I don't know. It's almost like a lack of... Um... A lack of awareness of it all. Mm. I think a lot of coaches come in to the sport thinking this is exactly the same as Munchen football, mm. which is a problem. I found that to be, you know, it's, it's good to be qualified and good to have all these things in, in Munchen football, but you do need to recognise that the sport is does have different aspects to it, different way yeah. of playing, and it's not exactly the same. And I feel like there's a lack of understanding maybe that, that they are... Yeah, they're, they're fundamentally they're still football, but they're different tactics, different elements to it that you need to understand in order for the in order for your teams to do well. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that set out for me, do you listen to the WFA podcast? Yes. Yeah. So at the end of some of them, people have been asking what rules would change, etc. And a couple of them have said the you know the wall on set pieces where you got a defender, goalkeeper, defender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They want that rule scrapped. But that's not how you should be looking at it from a team. You should be looking at how I can get around that block. So yeah. if you think about it, you've got three of their players in a line, right? Which then gives you the whole of the core of your four players to get the ball past one player that's going to be loose around the edge of the box. Just play back, you know? Mm-hmm. Play back, spread the ball. And that's it. That's down to the coach to entice that into the players to, to play back, not be scared to play back to your goalkeeper. Whereas people that want the rule changed is because they're not confident to play back to their goalkeeper and potentially spread the ball throughout the rest of the court where there's only going to be one less of their player roaming around, you know? And if you can't pass the ball between four players with basically one piggy in the middle guy, it's... You know, you need to yeah. improve the passing, you know. And that's what I mean about the coaching side. 
Colin came in and he's like, okay, they're going to set up like that. Let's block their player on the edge of the box so he can't get out. That's then three of their players. I shouldn't be telling you our tactics, but three of their players are then blocked in the same area, which then allows us to pass the ball around this one person out in the middle, you know? And that's the coach's mindset, which is what we needed at England to refresh everything. And um, yeah, it's it's paid off in the long run. Um, But it's taking coaches like that that needs to come in and uh, give a different energy, I guess. And you speak you speak really highly of Colin and how much he's changed the setup in England and make, made the difference. And it's so it's all about encouraging the players to play more than it, more than it is to change the rules. Yeah. And um, I think with that kind of mindset, it really helps the sport evolve. But I, as we were talking about, we talked about earlier on the call how you've just now won the the, the English Premiership. Player of the year for the first time in this yeah. year long tenure on the spot. Uh-huh. And it, it got me, you know, because I've been playing around for a short period of time. But in that period of time, whenever I, I always want to know, you know, who's who's the best, who, who who can I improve the most to play against and stuff like that. And, and when I ask people who, you know, who's the main man, the first name that comes to them is John Bolden or every, mm-hmm. every single. Person answers the question with your name, and, and it got it really got me thinking about you've been in, you've been in the sport so long and you've seen it evolve. How you know how much has the improvement of the English game and, and the different sides of it forced you to then improve and keep and keep pushing on? So much, mate. Like like we have so many talented players in our sport. Like not just in England, in, in the world, you know. And um, if if you as a player think you're the best, there's always other people that are just good adding that extra training session each week to then get to your level within like, I don't know, six months, which they'll not ever have. And if I, if I sit at home for six months and not do nothing and someone like Brad Bates has come on so much, Two, three years, and that's if I sit around for six months and do nothing, and he's training, why wouldn't he get to my level? You know, there's there's the footage there now. Get to where I am. It's pretty easy, you know. There's plenty of people to look at me and say, "Oh, what does he do in this situation?" Okay, well, maybe I'll do that in that situation, and then in that certain period and so it's like there is every um, everything out there for that player to improve if they want to improve um, and that's what us at England have done the, the, the way the team has come individually um, like I could name every single player in that squad that went last year the, the amount that they've proved over the last uh, two three years and then as a team, when every player's improved individually, it, when it, they come together as a team, it's pretty easy. You kind of just have to draw the lines to, to the dots that are already, in, already there, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, some, something that we spoke about there in terms of knowing that they, they, if you take your foot off the gas, they can surpass you. They can, you know, take your spot, so to speak. Mm. 
And uh, regardless of how long you've been in the sport or how well respected you are, it comes out of that at the end of the day. Uh, and it got me thinking about the Scotland setup and, mm-hmm. and, and wanting to mention something about that, which is we have a lot of, we have like, more, you know, we don't have that big a pool of players. So anyone that's like a strength force has get a chance of being in the squad. Um, but, you know, there's always like that kind of, there's, there's right now, I feel as though in Scotland there's a lot of players that are like, they want to get into the, want to get into the team and want to get into the next level, but they, they kind of, they feel as though they've been hard done by, like, they're not in the squad for unjust reasons and it's not really fair, whatever the case may be. But it made me, as you were talking about it, made me want to stress, you know, there's always room for the best. You know, what do they do? Them hard done by people? Do they say, I'm insult? Or do they think, no, I'm going to book a hole, improve yeah. on what the coach has said that I'm not in the team for, and get better? So then the next time around, I can show him that I've improved my striking, my dead ball pieces, my communication. And then, if I've improved that much, then tell me a reason why I'm not in the squad. Yeah. And if it comes back to the same reason, then it's not really valid because you've, you've improved. And so, unless some other players in the squad have improved as well, then fair enough. But if you've gone back with, with improvement on what the coaches said you're not in there for, then they've really not got a leg to stand on. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was quite fortunate in the sense of, like, I used to be... The reason why I'm talking about that is because I used to be that person... Right. I, used to, I used to be the person that was like, why, why, why do people not think I'm good and what, why am I not getting recognised for such and such? And really had a negative sort of way of thinking about it. But I was, mm. I was fortunate that that process for me was before there was a national team, before the sport had evolved. So I was able to figure it out, and then and, and as I figured it out, that was just when the national team started. So right. that process for me became came before much, maybe much like yourself, before there was even. And national team there? Yeah, that's kind of like, you could say it was a benefit for me because when I started, there wasn't a national team. There wasn't a sport in this country. So every England team that's happened since I've been playing, I've been involved in because kind of I've had the advantage because I've been playing longer than everyone else. And so in the early stages of England, it was kind of, there's a pool of 10 good players in the league and you've got to pick eight from it. So it was quite easy to get in that squad, you know? Yeah. But now, if you if you ask anyone in the the English league who your best eight players for England would be, everyone would have a different eight because there are so many decent players in our league. It's not easy to pick that eight that would go to a competition, and that's that's a um, a blessing to the coaching staff. But it's also it proves how hard players have been working in our league to get to that next level. And it's only been down to hard work and dedication to the sport. Um, yeah. And people take the sport how they want. If if you want it to be fun, then there are teams for fun. But uh, most players want the, the sport to progress. And to do that, it's not about fun anymore. It's about uh, being professional and um, getting the sport to the next level and hopefully one day being on telly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Because and, I, I like to mention this because when, when you're talking about the way that England have evolved... And I've come down. I can. I've got a taste for how, how the kind of gap between the standards. You 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 have this. There's like this mindset. This kind of maybe maybe arrogant mindset potentially of of the the, the gap probably isn't that big. But then when you go down and play in the league, 
we are playing the championship and it became pretty apparent to me how how different it was and how and I would come back and I was and I would train with my team in Scotland and people would do some more things that I'd had before and they were like, Oh, how did you learn to do that? Um but this is why I like to speak about the off field preparation mm. and encouraging that more so because I, you get players that come back, you know, they'll say, I, I've trained, I've trained a lot and I've, you know, I've been hitting the ball about and, doing, you know, like you say, booting courts, but um, they haven't really improved, mm. you know, they haven't really pushed on. And that, that, was, that was the case for me for quite some time where I was still, I was putting in a lot of work. But it, there wasn't much progress to be seen, and I think how important is it to be able to look at not just not just train, but train train your weaknesses, not just train the way that you think. I had a good session today, but actually look at it objectively and go, what is it I need to improve? And 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 potentially, if you're struggling to hit a ball and struggling to do certain things. Is it because of elements in your life outside of football are causing that? Very, very, very well could be. You know, um, going. You might have had a bad morning, and then you've gone to training, and you've still got that thought in your head from whatever it was that then you can't hit a ball. You know, uh, five out of ten times. You know, um, going back to what you said before, you as a player have improved because of your determination to improve. So you've taken yourself out of your comfort zone by going to join another team in another league. That means travelling all that all that miles to be the uh, at the competitions, and then it, you've benefited. You've benefited, and so is your team now. That when you've gone back, you've learned a different side of the game because you've been involved in the other club. Um, you've also experienced a lot, which more games under your belt, more teams that you've seen players to learn and uh, pick up information off, and that's what I'm talking about. How people. It's up to them to want to progress and put themselves out to be the best that they can be. If you wanted to, you could have just stayed in Scotland, not experienced half of what you've done last season and not picked up any of the talent that you have, like extra, by just sitting at home. But you've not. You've put yourself out. And that's what I've, I don't I obviously encourage everyone to just go into another team to improve. But you can go to another team's training session. I'm sure they'll let you. And just spend an hour, two hours with them. And I'm pretty sure you'll pick up something you didn't know prior to going. And it's just putting yourself out, you know, and um, it is. Yeah, I mean, you're totally, you're totally right. And for me, it's, that's why I like to just talk about it, because I want to bring one down and take other Scottish players with me. You know, not not down in England, but bringing what I'm learning up to Scotland, you know, and and, and say we can, because I think we actually have a very good squad of players individually, a lot of talent now, a lot, a lot of, you know, the, we're all quite raw, but you can see there's potential there. And mm. it's just about bringing up that kind of knowledge and saying this is the way we need to play. We need, we need to start looking at how we're, how we're you know, every aspect of the game and all these things. And you look at somebody like Logan Mitchison, he's went down and joined one of the top Yeah, he's stopped, is he? Yeah. And, and trying to lockdown. Well, exactly. His work ethic is a prime example of to, to, to play in Scotland and come down and play for 
um, one of the top yeah. teams in your league. You know, Thunder are always there and thereabouts when it comes to the yeah, top. Yeah. So he's and he's not looked at a place to be fair. And I thought I've never had a chance to play against him this season because because our league got cut short. We never actually got a chance to play Thunder this yeah. season. He's yeah, insane, but yeah. I can say that he's very excited to play against you when he yeah. take corners. But but um, the reason why I mentioned him and the reason why I'm talking about my own journey as well is because the, in terms of other players, it's it's, it's about being able and being able being able to kind of acknowledge that we're not we're just getting started and there is a lot of room for improvement and not thinking you know don't carve out thinking that we are the finished article here because we're we're far from that and the. Try to change that mentality, I suppose. Mm. No, yeah, no one's a finished article, mate. And you can always, there's, there's never a perfect team. There's always going to be something that you can improve on, whether it's just mental side of things or actually on the pitch. And so, yeah, no one should ever think that they're at the top of their yeah. game individually or as a team because there's always room for improvement. And it's not so much, I do want to stress that I'm not like. Uh, my point about it is that when you play in Scotland and, and you're and you're like maybe one of the best players in, the, in Scotland, you kind of you get this false idea maybe. And I, the only reason why I'm saying this, I'm not saying this for anyone else but myself, in terms of the way that I was able to see it when I look at how I thought maybe you know I thought very highly of myself. You know I'm doing doing quite well at the top of the league. And, you have, to have confidence in yourself, mate. Um, but but it was like I knew the league in England was great but when you go down there and you really realise how much there is to push on and, and trying to this is why I've spent some time talking about this because I want to emphasise that to the to the other countries and other players and maybe Scotland and Ireland and, and, and Denmark that are, trying, that are trying to break that ceiling to compete with England and compete with those other you know France and America but I, I, wanted, I wanted to talk to you a bit about leadership and how you've been the captain of England for quite a long time. Now, yeah. what, what, what do you, what, in your opinion, makes a good captain? I understand the background. That's the major thing. Because, um, you get so many different personalities in your squad. And some are very strong, some are very quiet and timid and it's how you approach them both on and off the pitch because I can say I can shout something to Chris on the pitch John can I just uh... you know criticising him you know? if I criticised him he, he would just take it and get on with it whereas if I criticise someone else maybe they might take it to heart and then just be down for the rest of the game so you've got to know who you're speaking to and obviously the things that you say on the pitch to obviously you want to encourage them the best you can. And so um, knowing your team is probably the top of the list uh, to know how to be a captain both on and off the pitch. Um, off the pitch, I'm kind of like a, I like everyone together kind of thing. I don't like people going off doing their own individual thing because then you start to maybe let your mind go um, Think about things that don't need to be thought about in that in that time, um, especially when you're at football. Um, and so, yeah, I'm kind of a keep your team together, keep everyone's spirits up as much as you can. Um, but obviously, know that what players you've got and what kind of motivation they need to be at the best that they can be. 
until about five years ago, we always had a manager like at Spire. That's where we won stuff and that. And then, unfortunately, his son stopped playing, so then he stopped managing. And then I naturally just took over. Um, and so I'm player manager, obviously, at Spire. And so as a manager, I've kind of, I've kind of obviously always wanted to win something. And I've managed to win one league title in that five years, I think, that I've been in charge. Uh, but, yeah, like you said, the evolution of, of West Brom, it's been down pretty much to Chris. Um, and obviously, he's got his dad in the background with his, his knowledge. Obviously, it's kind of a good thing that he's England and, you know, he can help Chris push that onto the squad. Yeah. But Chris has been so good with the way he's moved the players on and switching a few of their positions to... Uh, Brad Bates, for instance, when he joined Chris's team, he was in goal. And now Brad is like uh, pretty much one of the name starters on the England squad. And that's because of how well he's progressed both individually and in the team uh, team formation. And that that's kind of like, I don't like to say it because it's Chris, but I kind of like want to be Chris when it comes to a manager side of things yeah. because he's done great things with the squad. And um, he's, he's won so much, you know, as a manager. Um and so, yeah, I, I want to be at that level one day. And so, kind of lockdown's come at a good time for me because it's allowed me to focus on that managerial side of things. I know what I'm doing on the pitch, but uh, kind of when we go to training, I kind of go with ideas, but maybe not fresh fresh ideas. And so, the last six months or whatever has given me a chance to build up my portfolio of training, training techniques and stuff. And so, when we go back to training, my team's got a lot of work to do, put it that way. Well, I don't doubt the fact that I'm sure you will get to the level of coaching that's required and, and you already have that mindset and it's exactly how I feel in terms of playing in England and going down, you know, you get a lot of people that are like, that may want to kind of question you and see, and see can this guy do it? Is Scottish guy coming down? And my, my mindset is of the opinion of that it's it's a when not enough as to when I'm in a conversation with the likes of yourself and other people and People might listen to that and be like, "That's a bold statement to me," but I, but <laughs> I say it because I know, you know, I know like some myself and Logan are putting in that work and putting in that kind of time. So it's when you know you're doing it, when you know you're working harder than most people, is it's inevitable. It's not a question of if you're going to do it. Exactly, mate. You only get out of life what you put in, and if if someone wants to sit at home and not do anything, then they're not going to improve. Um, your talent or right, whatever level you're at will always be there but mm. uh, you'll never progress if you don't put in the effort yourself Exactly and, and I wanted to move away from football a little bit and talk about you know obviously you're, you're, you're a dad and you're, you're married and these things and yeah that's a really nice picture there um, Yeah it's a good girl but a lot of these things maybe a lot of people in wheelchairs and people with disabilities feel that that's not really reachable. We're not really encouraged to believe that we can live that kind of normal life. And how much of a kind of ch challenge was that to you in terms of getting over that barrier of thinking, you know, can I have this or, or, or how, you know, how, what, why do you think people feel that way about it? Why is it that maybe perhaps there's people that feel that they can't have that life that you have off the, off the pitch? Potentially because they've been told that rather yeah. than explore it for themselves. Or they've chosen to just bury their head in the sand, you know, like, oh, I can't do this, so I'm not going to even try. Um, I, I've, my parents have always driven that into me, that we always strive to get what we want. And um, we're a very, very family, uh, close family. And so um, 
I always wanted that for myself. Um, my parents have done a great job for me and my sisters. And so I want to be my dad, basically, like you said before. My dad's a massive influence on my life, both football and off it. And I just want to be the man that he is for me, to my daughter and my wife, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I always knew that I wanted to be a dad. I always knew I wanted to have a house and get married. Uh, kind of like, that's what my life is about. And so I never had anyone say, oh, you couldn't do that. Um, on, on the child front, because of my condition, it was kind of 50-50 whether my daughter would have my condition or not. And and for me, that was kind of a potential stumbling block, whether I had a child or not, because I know how much my wife helps me. So a person has obviously someone helping them sometimes. Um, I kind of felt like I didn't want that burden on my wife to have a disabled child and disabled husband to put in, you know, mm-hmm. it's, she needs to live her life as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so potentially that was a stumbling block, but um, touch wood, obviously Hallie came along and we had the test because we can have the test at 12 weeks and it will test whether Hallie had my chromosome or not, which has caused the defect in my body, obviously my central core myopathy for anyone that didn't know that's my condition. And it's basically a muscle condition, mainly in my legs. Um, I can't build them up to the strength of the able-bodied person, which is why I um, use leg braces. Um, so yeah, at 12 weeks, we could test whether she had the condition or not. And you do the test and you have to wait a week. And that week of my life was the worst, I could tell you. Um, not knowing that the child that's grown inside your wife is is basically going to live or not, um, based on the outcome, um, was tough. Um, but like I say, t- um, thankfully, she came out all well. And uh, she's now five, giving me a run around. <laughs> Put me in my place. How much do you think that's going to change you as a person? Oh, a lot, mate. A lot. You First of all, the love. The love you feel for a child is love that you've probably never, ever experienced in your life again. Um, just to know that that person is going to rely on you for throughout the rest of your life. Um and know that they look up to you for everything, just like for a drink, you know? Without you, they won't get that. And so it's just give you that more responsibility. And I, I love, I thrive on responsibility, uh, whether it's for a job, football, captaincy, you know, uh, running a home. I, I soak that up and I want to meet her targets. Like, I want to see her do well in her life and I want to make sure that everything possible I can give her, I'll give her. Uh, to allow her to achieve that, which is what my parents done for me. Um, I just want to carry that on. And so hopefully, yeah, she'll become maybe, you know, a woman footballer. <laughs> she can earn in the pounds by that stage. She'll be earning a load of money. She can bring it home for me. You never know, you never know. I, I, was a, I wanted to talk about that because, you know, like you said, maybe the, maybe people have been told that they can't have that kind of life. And, and it was definitely something that at some point I believed was a marriage, which is... Mm-hmm. Which was, which was not. It was nothing to do with whether I could or I couldn't. It was more to do with what I thought about my disability and how I felt about myself. And so it's kind of try to change the perception that, you know, having a disability doesn't mean. Cause I, I know a lot of people that can walk and run and and have and have all the aesthetics you could ever want, but but, um, they have they have, they have problems, you know, in relationships and and things like that, and it's not always. As simple as, well, when if I could walk or if I could this or that, you know, I would have this normal life. It's not as simple as that. It's more about you 
in your character and your personality and how you come across? So every, every relationship has a challenge, regardless of whether it's a physical disability or whether it's a financial, if it's anything, you know, every mm. marriage or every relationship has challenges. Being disabled is, it will always be the challenge for the person that is disabled, but for the, for the partner or the wife or whatever, they're, they're happy if they, they love you, whatever they need to do to support you, you know? And yeah. um, to be that for the disabled person and um, to allow them to be, be a great husband or wife um, and live happily together, you know? And uh, there's, no, there's no way no disabled person, well, every disabled person can get married. That, there is yeah. absolutely nothing stopping them doing so. They just got to find the right person that is right for them and they're right for the person. Um, yeah. There is somewhere out there for everyone, I'm sure of that. Um, but just because maybe the first or second relationship didn't work, it doesn't mean give up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is someone for everyone out there. And the, the, the thing about that is, you know, it seems obvious to like some myself and, and you or with, with how your life is, but there's a lot of people out there that maybe it's good for them to hear that, you know, it's good for them to hear that from somebody that's actually done it and achieved it. Um, and even from the kids' side of things, like, if you can't, you know, have kids, it doesn't mean you can't adopt a kid or foster a kid. They'll then still see you as a father and to have that responsibility that I was talking about and the love that you have for a child. There is, if you want something, there is stuff out there for you to have. And like I say, if you want the marriage, marriage is easy from a disabled point of view. There is nothing stopping any disability getting married if you find the right person, you know. And from the kids, obviously the adoption process isn't easy, but there is a route there for you if you can't technically have kids. Yeah, yeah. And so you could have every life that I've got. Like, well, not bigging my life up, but, you know, family, kids, uh, house, you know. There is nothing stopping any person with any condition out there. Exactly, exactly. I couldn't agree more. You know, so to switch back to football a little bit, you you've been in the sport a long time, and um, you've achieved a lot of things. Now, you spoke about maybe the next tournament tournament or so being maybe potentially your last, because you've got a couple of things to tick off. What what as you kind of go on and maybe look at your your kind of final few years and as a player. What are the kind of things that you want to pass on in the next generation? What piece of advice do you want us? What's the message from John Bolden to the rest of the younger players coming up? The hard work and dedication that I want them to put in because I want, I want, obviously, I want the England team to be the best it can be, regardless of whether I'm in it or not. I want to see them winning World Cup after World Cup after World Cup, year after year after year. And so, I know how many great young players we've got in, in the world, you know? Um, and so I just want them to believe in themselves, um, train as hard as they can, obviously, when we get back to training. And um, with the right support network around them, and like I say, how, how the sport has progressed over the years, the amount that's going to be there for them in the next five years, as in like coaching staff, as in um, FA pathways, um, there's going to be so much out there for them to pick up on and run with to make them better as players. Um, they've just got to believe in themselves and the stuff is out there for them to be 
he be the great player that hopefully they will be. Couldn't agree more, and I think that's a really fitting point to finish on. Uh, I really appreciate your time and coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, I've loved it. Thanks, and uh, thanks for your, what you're doing for you know the community and your podcasts are awesome, mate. And uh, keep up the good work, and hopefully I'll see you on the pitch next year or this year when I'm open it will be. Hopefully, uh, I mean, thank you for the nice words. Uh, I'm trying my best. The, the the phrase, be the change you want to see, comes to mind, and that's what I'm trying to do and, and shed a light on some things that maybe perhaps people don't understand about disability or know about, you know. So, again, I, I appreciate all your support and coming on in this conversation. As I say, really enjoyed it and took a lot from it for myself as well. And I'm sure the rest of the Poetry Football community will too. Uh, and that's what I say also. If anyone does want to contact me personally, regarding anything whether it's football whether it's personal life whether it's anything i'm always here and so i just want people to know that like don't feel oh it's john bolden you know you can't approach him <laughs> uh, i'm just like you and just, just talk to me yeah you know? and, and i'm sure now your dms are going to be full after after that yeah. comment <laughs> <That's the ladies>. <laughs> <laughs> we'll to hopefully your wife doesn't hear that <laughs> <laughs> But uh, where, where can where can we find you then, John, on that note? I'm John on uh, I think, um, on Instagram as well. Um, but yeah, mainly on Facebook. And obviously, if people want my email, it's johnbolding8 at gmail.com. Send me an email and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, well, thank you again, John. It's been a pleasure. No worries, my man. Thanks a lot and look after yourself.